Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy, and today we're continuing our content on the chinkapin. In this episode, we're talking specifically about the Ozark chinkapin. Now, if you're not familiar with this variety of chinkapin, it was once considered the tree variety of chinkapin, which is closely related to the American chestnut. Today, we're joined by Steve Bost, the president and founder of the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation. We chat about the complex history of this plant, the research and breeding work they're doing, and so much more. Take a listen, and if you're looking for more information, go check out the show's notes and the corresponding prior episode, as well as the Substack article, where you can learn a whole lot more about this unique, unique tree. Now, let's get into it. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your work and uh, a bit about the origins of the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation. Okay. Well, thank you, Andy, first of all, for inviting me on. It's really good. Uh, Information is absolutely powerful. So I thank you. The trees can't talk. So <laughs> thank you for them, though. Uh, but uh, thank you. a little bit back to your question, though, about the origin of it. Ozark Chinkapin has been around. If you go by the, uh, the DNA tests that are being done, all of them, keep pointing the same way that the uh, it's not the relic American chestnut species that's oldest. It's the Ozark chinkapin. The range of it was widespread. It thrived in really, really well-drained areas, whether it be rocky or sandy soil, all the way from, you know, from um, East Texas and Oklahoma and even Kansas, all the way across, even to Illinois. I think that's where you're at, correct? I'm out in New England, but uh, I oh, know it's okay, been yeah. found in, in Delaware, which we can talk about exactly, in a little bit. Yes, and so they extend all the way out to the Atlantic coast. And so if you look at modern tree books, it shows a very small range, and uh, it's so obscure now, most people don't even know anything about it. And so to understand the Ozark chinkapin, you have to first of all understand what happened to the American chestnut. So the Ozark chinkapin, um, you know, their range extended all the way into where the American chestnut's at. And so, you know, we've got, you know, some people say 3.7 or 4 billion American chestnuts were killed from the chestnut blight. You know, Cryphonectria parasitica that came from, uh, you know, the Orient. And so as it spread and killed the trees, there's places where... You have American chestnut, and there are also naturally occurring Ozark chinkapin trees. And some people get hung up on the name, and basically, to make it easier, if you look what they were saying over 100 years ago, they said there are chinkapin bushes, and there are chinkapin trees. And so further east you are, they probably weren't quite as abundant, but they were actually there. And uh, so as the blight spread further to the west, it also was killing the Ozark chinkapins. And, and, and it would uh, wind up reaching probably the western part of the range in Texas and Oklahoma by you know the 1960s. And so it, was, it just decimated them. And so what was once a very important tree, and more so here in the Ozarks, we don't have natural occurring American chestnut here, west of the Mississippi River. And uh, we have the Ozark chinkapin. And so they were a lot more abundant and probably more widespread and much more common here. But if you talk to people today, they, uh, they don't understand what you're talking about. And so we had to do a lot to, you know, actually prove it, you know, with historic records and old newspaper articles from, uh, you know, all over the, the native range of the tree. So it's been a, a lot of work. 
on a lot of different fronts, and uh, we're making some good progress now. So uh, if you fast forward up today, uh, we're dealing with remnant populations scattered, and we're doing a, a very large uh, DNA and molecular study through Missouri Botanical Garden. And so, so far, I've collected samples from uh, Delaware, Georgia. There's some in Virginia, but I um, have, don't have enough time. We've got a short window. And we've got some uh, from Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, you know, all of the native range of the tree. And so I'm really excited about this study. It'll let us know several things. First of all, if there's any foreign castania actually mixed in with the genetics that we're looking at. And, uh, and it will also help us about populations that are probably a little bit different because of geographic areas uh, than other chinkapin trees, you know, throughout the native range. Yeah, that's great. It's always really interesting to think about how quickly so many species can get lost just within, you know, the the lifespan of a human, right? So we're talking about trees that were very common on the landscape 75, 100 years ago. And within a generation, two generations, they've basically become this thing that for folks like yourself, you have to tell people that they were once here, despite <laughs> them being so common. Uh, and, and that's really frightening in a lot of ways, but also um, like it, it does speak to how the, the way the ecosystem evolves in the scale that is so difficult for us as humans to really fully appreciate and understand. I mean, I don't know about where you are, but where I am, we have like a, I'm sure you have the same issue of invasives. Oh, yeah. And um, it's a lot of those species have become so normalized that people don't realize what's missing, what's lost because of those uh, invasive species just moving in and displacing everything else. Now, the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation doesn't just do research uh, in, in this uh, very... Uh, scientific way. You guys also have a lot of applied science that you do, looking at the ways these trees have been used historically. And I'm, I'm assuming also in some ways using them as an analog for how the American chestnut was also used. I, I know you guys do like bow making or have at least tried doing bow making and uh, making bowls and all these other things that, you know, you need, you need big trees to exist to do it. And if there's a big American chestnut, you're not going to cut it down <laughs> to make a bow. You know what I mean? Exactly. I don't know if you could speak a little bit about that before we kind of get into some of the more uh, nuanced stuff about these trees. You bring up a couple really insightful uh, things going on that we have to deal with. And, you know, you go back in time, you know, three or four decades, the problem with the invasives is not like it is now. And I've worked uh, just a little over 26 years with Missouri State Parks. And of the last, I guess, four years or so there, my marching orders, 20 hours of my 40 our work week was get rid of invasives. And, you know, when you're dealing with invasives, you know, they have the advantage of, you know, they green up sooner, they stay green longer, and they're pushing our natives out of the way. And whenever you go into an area, it's overrun with uh, non-natives and you clear them out, you see some pretty amazing things happen. You know, as long um, as you can keep those invasives out in a short period of time, you see things like insects you've never seen before show up because now there are native um, native plants, you know, there's native wildflowers and different grasses that pop up. And then there's a whole plethora of insects and birds and amphibians that depend on those and evolve with the native species. 
In fact, they did one study in Missouri here a few years back, and I'm and you're probably familiar with um, uh, bush honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. so they found out that um, you know it actually takes over a forest, and you can look out through it's all through the the lower canopy, and uh, you know there's talk that they even emit a chemical that will keep other plants that are native from growing. So when you remove those, you know it's there's nothing there. Well, they found out that the red berries, because uh, the natives aren't there, you know, like a lot of our native, like uh, wild cherry or uh, the grapes, uh, you know, or uh, spice bush. So now there's the red berries off these invasive plants, you know, off this um, uh, bush honeysuckle. So a lot of woodpeckers and birds like cedar waxwings eat so much of those berries, it actually changes the color of their plumage. So guess what? The females don't want to mate with them because they aren't the right color. So color for birds, you know, they're real focused on specific colors. So populations are declining because of that, because of the new food source they're eating. And uh, so there's little bitty things like that that tie into it. And that's why growing native is the way to go. These animals, these insects have evolved with them. And, um, you know, and so when you put that back in place again, then you see some pretty amazing things take place. So the invasives is is a big component that everyone deals with. And you go along the road and you look on both sides of the road. And today, uh, I'm, I'm going to say roughly 50% or more of what you see along roadsides are not native. They're invasive plants. They're not native. Mm-hmm. The scary thing with bush honeysuckle like uh, that we see here with hardy kiwi as well is, you know, most of the invasives, like you were just saying, tend to stay in those early succession spaces. Whereas when you start dealing with these shade tolerant invasives, it's a whole other animal. Mm-hmm. It really is, yes. Because usually it's like, well, bring in the natives, they can crowd them out. And otherwise, when you can't crowd them out, it becomes a totally different battle. Yeah. And, you know, and this is all, I'm glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> this is a very interesting thing, you know, with proliferation of trade and travel, um, we're the reason why these invasives are here, whether it's invasive insects or, or plants. And, but we also have the power to do something about it. And one really amazing thing that I see, and I'm glad to see this, and it is a awakening and people understanding that, you know, we need to restore our native uh, plant uh, species and also rare ecosystems that depend on those. And uh, when you do, some pretty amazing things take place and happen. But uh, there's a lot of people now that have the mindset that, you know, I'm not going to buy this or plant this because it's not native. I'm going to go with something that's native. And uh, so that that mindset is really important, I think, in overcoming the return of any species and bringing it back. Yeah, for sure. Now, the Ozark chinkapin is... While I, I was saying earlier, you know, in a lot of ways, it does fulfill in an ecosystem a lot of things the chestnut mite, because they're so closely related in terms of what they can support for pollinators and caterpillars and so on. What's really interesting is that, as you sp- uh, said before, they tend to occupy a slightly different place in the landscape and have always kind of existed kind of on the periphery of the, the forest in those drier settings. So it's in that unique kind of like post oak, white oak, drier, you know, area where there's not as much competition, diversity, and so on. And I feel like that's probably something that's going to benefit the tree in the long run with climate change and all the things that are happening right now with our, with, you know, our eco, 
the the climate, you know, the the weather patterns, all these things that just seem to be rapidly shifting. Even with our best models, it doesn't seem like they're we're able to fully capture what's happening. And you know, you, you see these charts that'll say, you know, in fifty years, the for here, the Northeast is going to be wetter, it's going to be warmer, and you know, the last and up until this year, we've had drought for the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. So even if on a longer scale it is wetter. It, that is not a consistent thing where it's wetter every year or every month or anything like that. So having these trees that can handle these bigger extremes, I think, is going to be more and more valuable moving forward. Yes, good point. Yeah, and who knows what we're in for? Uh, no doubt about it. We affect the world around us. And then sometimes Mother Nature comes in, and you'll have a mini ice age. I mean, you know, it happened in eighteen sixteen. Uh, no summer. <laughs> and uh, so it snowed in June, July, and August, and you know, in parts of the U.S. So uh, sometimes Mother Nature reminds us uh, that we don't have all the control we think we do sometimes. But yeah, and it's something to be aware of, and it's something that um, that we need to and be mindful of. And uh, but at the same time, too, though, with something like this, you have to move forward. If you look in areas of the range of this tree, just this year. Down in Texas, Louisiana, southern Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama, even parts of Georgia, we've got some places where we're having, like down in southern Mississippi, where there are even, um, you know, uh, oaks and pines and even hickories dying. And uh, I just talked to a gentleman yesterday, and he told me that in Texas, this was the the uh, driest year, at least for them, that he had seen since 1957. And uh, so, you know. Uh, there's a, we could talk a lot on that whole topic, but you're exactly right though. So. Yeah. The the chinkabit I think is going to be more and more important. Uh, these trees that can handle that kind of, those kinds of conditions. I'm curious. So you've, you've been doing a lot of research on the chinkapin, obviously looking for the Ozark, but historically speaking, I feel like like older documentation from colonists up until about the 18th, early 19th century, there had been, uh, I believe, between depending on where you looked, between like seven and nine different chinkapins that were identified. And then later on, they all became part of one chinkapin. And now they're real re-realizing <laughs> that there was actually some understanding that there are these different varieties. Now, you, with all the knowledge that you have and experience you have, Right now, there's three-ish, uh, if you recognize the Alabama chinkapin. I'm curious about your thoughts, if there's more or if there's more nuance to even the Ozark itself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, let us know what you think. Well, at, at one time, I believe they had as many as 12 different varieties. And again, I, I, to make it easier, I don't get real hung up on that. I go back in time <clears throat> the way they used to talk about them. Um, you know, they said there's a chinkapin bush. And then there's a chinkapin tree. And an old book from 1908 actually had a picture, and it talks about the chinkapin being a bush. And it says, however, sometimes they can attain heights around 60 to 70 feet tall. They had a picture of them in this book, which is rare for the turn of the century. And they went on to say that, you know, usually they make a bush. As time goes on, we're able to look at more and more markers. It changes what we know about them. And uh, to summarize this, this whole conversation we're having about this, my daughter hit it really good. She does our website. She does our blight testing. And um, and she's a real good researcher. And she said something really profound. 
She said, the only thing that has changed about the Ozark chinkapin tree is our understanding of it. It's always been the same. And with this study that we're doing, we'll get more information about them that'll help us. And so as far as trying to dissect them, I got in some samples uh, just here recently from Georgia. And um, there's a lot more mixing, it seems like, the further east you go of uh, foreign castania, whether it be European chestnut or Chinese chestnut or even Japanese. And uh, clearly what I got that they thought was an Ozark was a, um, a Chinese, or at least it had some mixing in it. And you run into that. If you look at old articles from the 1930s and 40s, when the chestnut was declining, they talk about different imports that they have, like no words about it. You know, we've got you covered. We have Chinese chestnuts that'll make large nuts just like the American chestnut will. So there's a lot of people that are actually planting those, trying to, you know, in some way deal with the loss of the American chestnut. And then as the blight moves further west, you see a similar thing happen, not not on such a wide scale, but you see it take place in, on the west side of the Mississippi River as well, too. And uh, so it's just people, you know, well-intentioned, trying to do something to make a difference. That's not what we're doing today, though, but we have to deal with it. We have to keep our radar open. Um, and when we have studies done, you know, whether it be a molecular study or DNA study, and try to glean from that information, well, is this pure? Is there any foreign castania in it? And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we're, number one, making sure it's North American. And there may be some natural ad mixing going on. You know, that's not hybridization. That's where you'd have the same common parent that may be thousands of years ago. And so um, so we're, you know, we're real sensitive to geographic areas, trying to make sure as much as we can that we restore something that actually came from that area. Yeah, I, it didn't even occur to me that you'd have that mixing like you do with American chestnut, you know, bringing, trying to save the American chestnut or replace the American chestnut or hybridize the American chestnut to be more resistant and uh, what the consequences could be for the chinkapin didn't even occur to me. Uh, but yeah, that that's a big deal. And it makes sense that it was primarily the East Coast where uh, those efforts were mostly driven by researchers on the East Coast. Yeah, I'll tell you the blight first showed up and was noticed too. Uh, and I think now it's even before the Bronx Zoo in 1904. They're thinking it could be here as late as the 1800s, but it was not noticed until then. Yeah, I, that would make sense. I mean, there's so much there's so much travel happening in the late 19th century. I mean, it it was bound to come one day, one time or another. Uh, there's no way around that, unfortunately. I think, uh, and now we're experiencing it with basically all of our keystone species. I mean, you name a keystone tree, and it's got some kind of major issue to deal with, whether it's beach or, you know, you go through the list, unfortunately. In terms of the the Ozark chinkapin, I'm curious about your thought of whether or not it it can return back to the landscape. I know it's more resistant to blight, uh, and you guys are working on that. I'm, I'm really interested to th- about kind of where do, you, where do you see the Ozark 20, 50 years from now? Well, we already have blight resistance. In fact, we have uh, uh, blight resistance. It's taken 17 years to get where we're at now. And so through the the blight testing that we've done, um, we actually, we at one time had about 9 to 11% better than Chinese chestnut, you know, Castanium lysima. And right now we're pushing around 28 to 30, 31% on some of our parent trees on resistance. And it's taken a lot of work. So we 
we'll take one surviving tree and we will cross pollinate it to another one, and then we will outplant those. And then, um, in and you know, out of just ballpark figure, roughly 60% of the trees produced by doing what I just described with controlled pollination, they they'll be like the parent tree. They'll have you know good resistance like both parent trees will. And then uh, uh, 20% of them may have less resistant than the parent trees. But then another 20% may have higher resistance than either parent tree did. And so those are the ones that we focus on for the next crosses, and we repeat it again. And so, you know, we've got some trees, you know, um, two and a half, three years, we start getting nuts off of them. And these things sometimes will grow very quickly depending on the habitat where we put them at. Some of them may only grow a few inches or a foot. Some will grow two or three foot in one year. Some of them, uh, with just a little bit of care, will grow four feet or even five. And some of them, the second year, they'll make pollen. Third year, they'll make nuts. And not all of them do that, but some of them will. Sure. And so that turnaround really helps us. So what we look at is, uh, and kind of going back to our earlier conversation, um, we've got blight resistance now. So the next big one that we're really focusing on with all these droughts that we've been dealing with is trees that have greater drought tolerance. That's the next big thing we're working on now. So we've been in experiments and we've been uh, not watering trees on some of these restoration and research plantings that we're doing to see what happens. That's awesome. And we've had some surprises. We've had some trees die and some of them actually thrive and grow better than trees that we're watering. And in fact, right now as we speak, we've got at Hobbs State Park, which is in Arkansas, the naturalists there, Steve Churchill and the volunteers, give a shout out to them. They actually, we had a drought killed tree and they're actually carefully doing like an archeological dig, excavating all the roots. And they're finding out some pretty amazing things about how these things can survive drought. We don't have all the end results on it right now, but it's pretty amazing uh, information they're coming across. It's never been published or found out before. And so little things like that, knowing about the trees, helps us be more successful about trying to bring them back. And uh, in our breeding program, you know, we're, we look for, number one, is highest uh, blight resistance. Then uh, number two would be drought tolerance, and right with it would be early nut production and real rugged, fast-growing, and be able to tolerate a lot of other things. And uh, we deal, you know, talking about invasives, these trees have to deal with Asiatic gall wasp, which has uh, decimated a lot of chestnut trees. And we're actually immune to it. Uh, Sandra and Agnosticus did a study and found out that the Chinese chestnut and the Ozark chinkapin are immune to gall wasp damage. And so we've got that on our side. Uh, then another bad one that we all have to deal with, any chestnuts, and this is the invasive Asiatic oak weevil. And so even though they attack oaks, they love chestnuts, and they really go after them. So when we plant these trees and put them in wild settings, it's real minimal care given. We want them to be able to make it home. And we found out that once the trees get roughly 10 feet tall, uh, there's no problem with uh, the Asiatic oak weevils eating the leaves. Uh, we found out we've got a, a helper we didn't know we've got. That's awesome. I, I'm really shocked that the Ozarks produce nuts in two years, given that they don't have that bushy shape. go a little bit. I was going to ask who the helper was. 
The helper that we have are neotropical birds, particularly the northern perula. They will actually glean every insect off the leaves of Ozark chinkapins from about 10 feet up. And so um, it's incredible, you know, when you bring something back. So these are a boon for a lot of populations of birds like neotropicals and particularly whippoorwills as well. So um, just another little thing we found out in the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, that really points to the fact that when we lose trees that long ago, like the American chestnut, or really chestnuts in general from the landscape, we don't really fully have a, a full picture of how the ecosystem worked before those trees were gone. Like we have very rough, you know, descriptions and things like that, but we didn't have the resources to to fully catalog things the way we can today. So it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of, you know, reintroducing these trees back into the landscape. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. We may never know. Um, I've, I've got a picture of John James Audubon painted in 1800s, before, sometime before 1850. And he's got um, a uh, yellow-throat warbler and a chinkapin tree. And, um, and I've got a picture that we took um, actually this spring, I, I guess in May, of one today and one. So it's kind of like the return. And interestingly, too, talking about all this stuff, there was um, a bee that was thought extinct that was um, tied in to the American chestnut. Andrina Rena I may not be saying the scientific nomenclature correctly, but anyhow, this bee had not been seen since the loss, pretty much, of the American chestnut. <clears throat> well, about, I guess, over two years ago, three years, something like that, one of the head um, entomologists that studies bees actually found that bee in Connecticut and it was not on an American chestnut. It was on an Ozark chinkapin tree. And they thought this thing was gone. And so we had, a, uh, you know, again, it wasn't documented, but this was one that was. And then there's a butterfly called the King's Hair Streak butterfly. And I don't know, there may be 30, give or take, samples of those found uh, since the loss of the American chestnut. But they, this particular butterfly, though, unlike uh, the bee, though, actually specialized in chestnuts and sourwood. And so we're, we're at West Mississippi River. There's only sourwood growing natively, occurring in part of Louisiana. And that butterfly was found um, near or in Mount Magazine, Arkansas. And uh, so there, there's a, a lot that we don't know. There's a lot of pages waiting to be filled on the restoration of this tree. And it doesn't have to do just with the nuts. You know, they're good to eat. Wildlife love them too. 
and they have a significant impact on the forest because they do make nuts every year. But there's a lot of empty pages waiting to be filled on the story of this tree and its comeback. Yeah. So are you eating any of those nuts or do you save them all? <laughs> yes, I eat some. Uh, I use them. The ones that we generally eat are the ones on the trees that uh, don't have as high resistance. That's the way we decide which ones we will and which ones we want. And they're real sweet. They they're, have a unique flavor. They're like a real sweet kind of almond, peanutty flavor, and uh, the neatest aftertaste I've ever tasted. And, you know, they're, they're packed full of protein, around a little over 15% protein and um, right at 61% carbohydrates. And if you compare that, uh, the protein is roughly double the American chestnut. You know, they run 5 to 8% in protein. And then yeah. um, very sweet, yeah, and real sweet. And then so the uh, the oaks, most of those run in the four percent on protein. So you're looking at a, a mm-hmm. nut that is making you know over three times the protein of a white oak acorn. And so that's pretty significant. A lot. Yeah, that that's pretty similar to I think like a hickory, but also it's much easier to process. Is there any difference in flavor profile between the Ozark and the uh, Allegheny? Uh, both of those are really sweet. I can't tell much of a difference in them. Um, I've read before that the Allegheny are sweeter. Uh, I've eaten a, little, a lot more of the Ozarks, so I don't have a real good handle on that one. Here in Missouri, we don't have any natural occurring Allegheny chinkapins here. Uh, it's a little bit different where you're at. You've got to get further down into Arkansas and um, you know to find the uh, upland Allegheny. But there's a second variety of Allegheny you know, Castania pamilla, that's a coastal variety. It, it thrives better on wetter areas from like Texas coast all the way down to Florida and all the way up to New Jersey. And uh, I've eaten a few of them, but not many, not enough to really get a good answer for you on that. But I know they're definitely good too, the ones I've eaten. Yeah, I was always curious. I've had a couple. Um, I've ordered them because I've never found any wild uh, chinkapins around here. They're very, very rare in New England. Uh, other than the ones you plant, yeah. yeah, I've, I've, I've had the profile that you described is very similar to how I would describe them. So I was just curious if maybe you yeah. could, if there was a nuance to them, if you could describe them, because you're pro, if you've had them, you're probably a handful of people that have had both of them and knew that they were from different cultivars. So that would be an interesting comparison. Yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, is this really interesting report of historical Ozark chinkapins in Delaware and kind of not just like the fact that they were found and that there's this evidence of them having been there for a while and like way outside of the, as you said, the historical range of the Ozark, or at least how we think of the historical range of the Ozark, but also like the the implications it has that a tree was moved that far from its, again, that that uh, natural habitat origin, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. From what I've heard, and um, this is through folks I know that know people, you did go up to Delaware, um, or at least you were invited up there. I'm not sure if you've been there. I don't know if you could talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I had to cancel uh, one of my trips out east, and I've been in conversations with, with folks all over the eastern U.S., and um, and I will be going up there too, though. But Kind of interesting, if you were to ask someone going along this lines, what was the native range of the American buffalo or bison, whichever you prefer to call it, what would your answer be? My answer is probably not a normal answer compared to most people uh, because of the research I do. But I think most people would assume the you know the Midwest. 
the Midwest. Okay. And um, um, I invite you to watch a special by Ken Burns put out October the 18th called The American Buffalo. And I, I know this from historic research. I, I've got a degree in history and one science, both, you know, in education. And so um, I love this stuff and dig into it. So they were actually all the way out to the eastern U.S., American buffalo, American bison, whichever you choose to call them. So if you ask most people that, they would say, uh, no, they were, like you said, in the Midwest or they were out west. Native Americans traveled out west to hunt them. And that's not the story. They were here and in great numbers. The Native Americans, they burned to encourage uh, more production of nut-bearing trees and grasslands for hooved animals. And so so in archaeological digs, they, they see this, and the evidence is there. And so the reason I use the American buffalo as a comparison, those are chinkapins about the same way, too. So it may well be that they that's not a con- population separated from the rest of them. Uh, their population extended all the way out there. And so if you look at uh, the evidence uh, from archaeological digs, radiocarbon 14 dating, you know, if you go back 400 years before present or 6,000 years before present, uh, Native Americans were utilizing them. And that, that goes all the way out to the Atlantic coast. So we keep finding more information. So I don't have a good answer for you if those were all by themselves, but I'm thinking since we have pictures and information and articles and newspapers you know, from the late 1800s, talking about chinkapins being in Maryland, talking about them being in Virginia, and some of these other states, North Carolina, it makes you wonder just how great the range actually was. So the same thing, like if you ask someone like American Bison, where was the range at? People say, no way were they in New York, no way were they uh, about where the District of Columbia is at today. But if you look at historic records and accounts, and you accept the fact that these people aren't making this up, it happened. And, you know, when you research this, you yeah. find some more really interesting information. A lot of people wouldn't believe that in the original 13 colonies, some of them outlawed deer hunting because the deer population was declining so much because of overhunting. And the same thing happened to the American buffalo. And uh, so a lot of times when you go back and you really dig and look at this information, and then you look at evidence and archaeological digs and trash pits, it will change what you actually think. And I'm, I'm going to say, and um, I can't find it, but I think somewhere in National Geographic, they did a thing about animal populations based on trash pits and Native Americans. And they said animal populations, 1491. And it was really interesting about what they were finding, not just randomly, but enough where they were pretty confident about saying the populations of a lot of species, uh, like the American buffalo, had larger ranges than what we today think, you know. And I think the Ozark then fits right in with that as well, too. The funny thing is, you know, we talked about this, these native species that start to spring up when you return these trees to the landscape. The inverse also happens with the buffalo. I know Dr. Natalie Mueller had done some work with buffalo being rematriated with the landscape outside of New Orleans, somewhere in Louisiana. And what they found was when the buffalo would work through the landscape, suddenly, for whatever reason, the way the buffalo were 
into you know working with the land uh rolling in the ground and all on all these different things they started to see new native species kind of come back that their seeds must have been in the seed bank but they needed something specific to happen in the landscape that for whatever reason the 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 buffalo the bison was was that you know that that piece that kind of whatever had to happen to those seeds happened and they started seeing this rebirth of really rare native grasses and things like that which is just like really beautiful and like a reminder that the landscape can recover if we allow it to that's the key word if we allow to you're exactly right that that's encouraging to hear information like that you know if if you think about it one of the biggest tragedies besides the loss of like the american chestnut and the ozark chinkapin is the loss of all that uh real fertile prairie soil that took thousands of years uh with tall grass uh, growing on it, you know, the roots go way down deep, you know, some people find it hard to believe, but some of them 12 feet, you know, 14, 16 feet deep. And so the buffalo played an important part of that. And so it didn't matter if you had a burn, if you had trees, whatever it was, that real deep root base, you know, they would survive those droughts and they would come back. So along we come, you know, in the uh, 1900s, we plow everything up, destroy the prairie sod. And basically destroy all but just less than 100 wild roaming buffalo, and uh, then along comes drought, and then you we plant wheat on the ground and corn, and it blows away all that topsoil. And uh, so you know if you talk to people that went through the Dust Bowl era in the 30s, it was incredible about how how much damage was done, and that soil is never you know it's never grown back. You know it's gone. But it's up to us, like you said, we can actually do something today to restore that and make a big difference in it. And it's encouraging when I hear stories like what you talked about, the reintroduction of them. And I know Native Americans um, are going in and they're actually reintroducing buffalo to their different reservation lands. And, you know, at one time it was an important food source for them. And for thousands of years this happened. And they coexisted with it and cohabitated with it. And uh, I think there's a big lesson for us to learn from Native Americans. Uh, you know, they were in the business of doing conservation burns long before we got the bright idea. And um, and they coexisted mm. and then overutilized uh, populations. And uh, so a lot to be learned there from it. And we worked with the Cherokee Nation and, um, you know, on restoration they do a lot of work on ethnobotany plants that were one time important to the Cherokee Nation. And uh, it's really inspiring and encouraging to see them bring back these native plants like those are chinkapin. And they had many names for that tree. One name that they have for it is the bread tree because they would crush up the nuts and make like a high protein type of, um, of flour with it, you know, to cook with. And so it's, uh, it's encouraging to see all this happen. Yeah, I, I much like when we started talking, I do feel similarly that we're kind of at the the early stages of relearning how to respect and care about our landscape. Uh, but that process is really slow, and conversations like this, learning what the the biggest challenge is always finding out the things you don't know. How do you you don't know what you don't know? So how do you how do you get there to learn those things? And that's kind of been a lot of what this whole project has been about. And you guys are doing really great work. Um, I will say, so what we do typically is we have an episode and it's paired with 
a research episode, which is like fact based, and then like a conversational piece like this. And um, the research based episode, a lot of the research, I did end up using stuff that you guys have on the Ozark Chinkabin Foundation website, because you guys have an incredible catalog, especially of news articles and things like that, which are really fascinating to read because it's not just, it's really interesting to see how news uh, reporting has changed and it doesn't become as, or it becomes very obvious when you start reading these old newspapers that'll have a a one paragraph about a tree and the way they describe the tree. It like, you can't read it and not smile when you see those types of things. And, um, that, that is the little the only thing I'm going to give to the audience to, so that they have to go <laughs> to the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation website because it's, it's really cool. Yeah, it's, uh, we have one of our board members that will type in, and, and you're in which state right now? I'm in Massachusetts. Okay, Massachusetts. Okay, very good. He will take a state like Massachusetts and type in Chinkapin and let it scan back and see what you can find in it. And we glean all kinds of really good information. I love it. Really surprising. And but uh, if you want to get something done, though, take a a lot of different people like working on this tree to give you an example that have a resolve to bring this tree back. You know, they've heard stories about it. They've seen it. They know. And you can't put a, a price of money on it. And you have the different backgrounds of people that are involved in it, looking at it from different angles and different ideas. You know, some looking at it from perspective, historically old newspaper articles and others with the research, you know, cutting edge technology on research. And then you got boots on the ground, uh, you know, where you get out there and are doing something with it. And you get a group of people together like that and you can get huge things accomplished. And um, it's just amazing what we've done in a relatively short period of time. And on the science part of it, just our um, the cutting edge technology we're doing with the uh, the uh, black testing has pushed us ahead easily 10 years and maybe even 15 years from the old way that we're going to do it. So we are way, way ahead of where we I thought we'd even be at this time. And so it's really, really a good thing to do it. And then on the other side of the coin, too, something else that's happening that I'm really glad to see. I just came back from a program that was done, and it was a forced walk where they had different characters along the way uh, dressed in costumes like Blight and like a chinkapin tree and a squirrel and a woodpecker and uh, even someone from the past. And along the way, I was amazed at the five and six-year-old, eight-year-old children that understood completely about what this meant and how important it was. And so it's really inspiring to see younger people really involved in this effort and volunteering, wanting to make a difference in it. And I think that's something that we leave behind. It's important to know that what we're doing is something not just the wildlife will inherit, but also our children and future generations will inherit. And so when, when you have something like that going on, it, um, it strengthens your resolve about what we're actually trying to do and bring back. Absolutely. And I think this pulls back into those are Chinkabin Foundation, what you guys are doing. And I will plug that I am a, a member donor to the Ozark Jacobin Foundation. One of the one of the cool things is that you guys are a nonprofit, so it is tax deductible for people that are interested in listening and want to donate. Um, and also, you guys, and I haven't gotten mine yet, but you also give away uh, Ozark Chinkapin, uh nuts. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so what we 
we do, we're we're not in the business of trying to make money. We're in the business to try to restore species, but we need the money desperately. <laughs> and but but what we're trying to do it's the world we live in is make it affordable. So when you join, you spent thirty dollars unless you decide to donate more. And we usually give five seed uh, out to people that uh, and they there's no guarantees, but they came from parents that tested really good blight resistance. And um, so, you know, you could have some that are even better than the parents. It could be some less. It could be about the same. And so these are ones that we have field tested. They're rugged. Uh, they're survivors. And um, and so we're trying to allow people on their own. And, and it's interesting because we work with agencies like Youth Force Service, like um, – uh, departments of agriculture. We work with universities. We work with different other organizations, you know, the Cherokee Nation, National Park Service. Uh, I was out planting trees with them on November 1. And um, and so we work with all these different agencies, but it is people like you and people that have maybe a backyard, a back 40, or they have some other wild property. And if they have suitable habitat, and they want to try to grow them, then we encourage them to do it. We're trying to make it easy for them to do it. You know, at just $30, you only, you get five seed, and we're going to have to have our first price increase we've ever had probably at the beginning of the new year. We've held the prices down, but shipping keeps going up, and we use that money to help us perpetuate our work, you know, and we that's what we go by in donations. And like you said, we're a nonprofit. So when somebody donates to us, it goes directly to this, we have no rent, we have no electric bills, no heating bills. Um, you know, we we all donate our effort um, from where we live at. You know, we we you know we we spend money on gas and rebar and grow tubes and and we do research and testing and everything goes directly into that. And uh, we try to be real resourceful with our money and our time. And by all means, though, we appreciate donations, but they seed though are a way of people to actually do their own restoration. And sometimes we have people say, well, you know, we don't want to want seed, but we want to make a donation to try to help you. And there's something for everyone. Some people just by telling other people about it can make a difference. Some people we've had uh, say, well, I want to make a, a bigger donation to make a difference. Or some people can say, well, I want to volunteer and help. You know, I want to help you find trees. I want to help you water them. I want to go in Massachusetts and I want to look for trees. I think I may know where there's some at. Everyone can make a difference in this. And at the same time, too, you're not just bringing back a species. You're also returning a rare ecosystem, you know, that's been missing from or, you know, anywhere from 60 to maybe 120 years or more. And so everybody can be a part of it. And I appreciate that plug on it. And uh, but it, it takes all of us working together. It may be somebody that just looks at maybe historic records of surveys and say, hey, you know what? When they first surveyed this part of Massachusetts, the species, we had species here that aren't here now. You know, I see where that, you know, beech trees were here. Well, guess what? Uh, you know, 94% of them are gone now. Or they may say, well, you know, we had a certain species of um, pine or any number of things. And so knowing that they were there at one time helps us. And it helps you understand what was it like before, you know, that we changed everything. And we actually have. And so, but we can, we do have the ability to go in and work with each other and try to reverse some of this before it's too late. And some species, we're teetering on the edge right now. 
So there's a sense of urgency, especially with what we're doing with the Ozark Chinkapin. We're losing trees every year, you know, remnants of them. And even though we're restoring them, we're still losing more than we're restoring back. And so there's that thing that we, we've got to do what we can. And sadly, there's some trees we didn't get to in time to save the genetics on. And so that's what we're trying to do is find these rare surviving trees, whether they be in New England or, or North Florida or wherever they may be at or, you know, in, uh, in Indiana or Illinois, it doesn't matter. And they're still out there. We've got historic records of them all the way across to the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, just because we don't see them today, it's like the American buffalo. That doesn't mean they weren't here at one time, you know. You have to kind of think of it yeah. in those terms. Steve, this has been really insightful. Um, I'm really hopeful for the work you guys are doing. I think the more people that know about the Ozark Chinkapin, the better we're all going to be. So um, I I appreciate the work you're doing. And um, hopefully everyone listening also goes and checks out your website. All the website information can be found in our show's notes. So if people want to go check out the Ozark Ozark Chinkapin Foundation, the link is in our show notes. Go donate to them. They're doing good work. Steve, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay. If I could say one last word, I'm just the leader of the group, but we've had so many people like our board directors and volunteers, and even people years ago like the LED Foundation in Missouri that believed in what we were doing and supplied the land to help us do this restoration work. So it's a pleasure talking to all of you, and thank you, and uh, thanks for being part of the restoration to spread the word. (laughs) 